and welcome to Non-Breaking Space. Non-Breaking Space is a show where we'll seek out the best, brightest, and smartest people on the web and talk to them about how and why they do what they do. Your hosts are Christopher Schmidt and Dave McFarland, two web designers, authors, and trainers who have a passion for sharing knowledge about the web. I'm Chris Enns, a web designer and podcaster. Christopher and Dave have invited along to help push the record button and keep everyone on track here on Non-Breaking Space. Our guest for episode three is Emily Lewis. Emily creates beautiful, accessible, standards-based websites from her web design and development studio based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. As part of her ongoing quest to spread the good word about standards, she writes about web design on her blog, A Blog Not Limited, and is the author of Microformats Made Simple and a contributing author for the HTML5 cookbook. She's also the co-host of the Expression Engine podcast and speaks at conferences and events all over the country. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Christopher and Dave and their conversation with Emily. Hey, this is Christopher. And this is Dave. Hi, Chris. How's it going? Oh, going great. How are you doing, man? Good. Oh, it's been a while since... Uh, so uh, what have you been up to? Uh, let's see. What have I been up to? Oh, you know, I've got kids, so I've always got something busy right. happening. Cool. Some birthday party to go to. Yeah. Some park to be at. <laughs> um, have you seen this Occupy Flash thing? Uh, no. like Occupyflash.org. Uh, like what's happening at Occupy Flash? The movement to rid the world of the Flash Player plugin. Oh. <laughs> I don't know if we need their help, but yeah, uh, yeah. Looks they don't say who they are. Oh, really? It's so, a single page thing. So it's an asking promise. everyone to uninstall Flash on their computer. Well, they're not saying who they are. It's kind of weird. Oh, no, that's kind of weird, huh? Yeah. Let's see, it sort of reminds me of another website actually, but I'll I'll let that slide. But um. Yeah, it's kind of weird. So it's like 99% uh, yeah. Flash installed browsers want to get rid of themselves, right. I guess. Right, I guess so. I, although I guess it really in this place, case, it's like we're the other 2%, right? Okay, yeah. Because 98% install base of Flash on desktop. So I don't know. Right. Yeah, I don't really get it. I mean, like, because Adobe announced that they're getting rid of Flash on the mobile space, so which was really kind of weird in a way because usually when you kill something, you just don't make a press release. And, right. and like usually, especially in software, you just like don't support it, you know? So uh, you're just like, hey, we're not doing it anymore and people just get the hint and they just leave. But Adobe, Adobe seemed to make the case that uh, no, really, really, we're not doing Flash for mobile. And so what people heard was uh, they're not doing Flash, period. And so, right. and so, uh, which is kind of silly because they didn't have, uh, they're not really, so I guess they're trying to like pivot to embracing HTML5. So I think that's kind of. Kind yeah, of, I think that's what the press uh, announcement was about, was to sort of position themselves in the space for creating native applications, HTML5 apps that'll run on Android and right. iOS. Um, uh, Arl, I'm sure I'm saying his name incorrectly, Arl Balkan yeah. um, has as a, article up on .NET today that he published about Flash being dead. <laughs> so um, <laughs> that seems to be the word on the street. Yeah. Well, um, but he, he's talking about how, uh, you know, Adobe has a good chance to leverage their technologies into, you know, their, their kind of platform of Flash Builder and ActionScript and the, you know, Flash um, authoring environment into something that could actually be used to create native cross-platform applications, which... Hopefully, that's the direction Adobe's going to go. Um, it would be nice to have an easy way to create uh, complex Canvas-based animations because Canvas is not 
too easy to do. No, it's not. But I mean, they they do have some really cool apps and beta development. So they're still, but they're still playing along. I mean, it's still right. still not there yet. But it's really because I, I I've avoided Flash throughout my career as like a plague, and um, <laughs> and actually it's been kind of weird because we do the uh, Environments for Humans Summit series. And that actually runs off of uh, Adobe Connect, which is based <laughs> off of Flash. So, right. so I actually have to interact with Flash more so now than I did before. So it's kind of weird. <laughs> like, so like now I rely on Flash, but now it's dead. So I don't know. So right. Just, oh well. I'm not sure what they're going to do. Yeah, but, uh, but yeah. Cool. But yeah. So yeah. But uh, nothing is uh, new with me except for a uh, new book came out. Ooh, what's this book? Yeah, uh, the HTML5 cookbook just came out. Um, really? Tell me yeah. more. Yeah, well, it was a, a, a big crew was needed to, uh, to make this book come together. And actually, our guest for today is one of our contributors to the book, uh, Emily Lewis. So, Emily, are you there? I am. Hi, guys. Hey. Cool. Hello. Cool. How's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me on. Cool. Well, uh, thanks for being here. Yeah, awesome. So uh, I love Emily uh, because she's not only helped out with HTML5 QuickBook, but she has uh, one of the best books uh, out there on uh, on for web development. I think uh, Microformats Made Simple. And you got the title right. <laughs> <laughs> I always always screw up the title. It's, it's a running joke, uh, sad sad joke. Because uh, uh, whenever I, I I say it in front of people, I say uh, made easy. And uh, that's, and then she like throws eye darts at me. No, it's endearing <laughs> at this point. <laughs> uh, but yeah, microphones made simple because I love the book because it's because uh, uh, if you go to micro, I mean, I'm not sure what you think about this, Emily, but like if you go to microphones.org and you just don't get the realize what the benefit to microphones are. Yeah. You read the yeah. site and, and you read the specs and you're like, oh, what are they trying to say? But but you wrote a really great book about microformats and uh, made simple. And uh, I actually like everywhere I've talked, I, I it's like number one thing I say. Like uh, if you don't get anything right, talk, which is totally probably unrelated to what I'm talking about, <laughs> is uh, to go pick up uh, your book because it's oh, it's really thanks. Uh, I appreciate it. Oh yeah, uh, please. So that's probably a good place to start. Why don't we uh, talk a little bit about microformats? Um, I. I I encounter a lot of people who don't know what microformats are and what their benefit is for web developers. So maybe you could just start with, you know, kind of basic introduction to what they are, how they work, and why we'd want to use them. Sure. Um, yeah, I actually encounter a lot of people that don't know what they are as well. Um, uh, at their fundamental description, it's really just a HTML um, markup pattern for um, adding some semantic uh, additional information to your content. Um, the simplest example I use to describe microformats is, you know, almost every website out there has some sort of contact information on it, whether it's for an individual or a business or whatever. But you and I, when we visit the website, uh, you know, our human brains process that content and say, oh yeah, that's an address. We recognize that pattern of information. Um, but, you know, machines like a search engine encounter that content and it's, it's just like any other content on the page. But with microformats, you add um, little uh, class values. M most often the class attribute is used 
to add values that literally describe the elements of the address or the elements of the contact information to make it such that a machine like a search engine can encounter that content and says, oh, this is an address. Therefore, I can do more with this content in the sense of I could potentially use it to um, link to um, you know, a map, uh, or I could potentially allow the phone number to, you know, the person to be able to select it and to automatically dial a phone number. So it really just sort of sets up your content with a, a foundation that allows machines to then have little semantic hooks that they can then use your content in a more um, intelligent manner for you as a person, as a consumer. So, so it, you can use microformats for marking up addresses. What are the other kinds of content that there are microformats for? Yeah, the contact information is probably one of the most popular simply because it's the most common on the web out there. But there's also microformats for events, uh, for reviews like a book review or, you know, um, and a um, like a location review, like a hotel or something. Um, recipes, that's gotten um, increased uh, popularity as um, food bloggers have been using it to get better um, exposure and some Google tools that take advantage of microformats. Um, they're also sort of um, more, not, not too specialized, but they're less common than like events and contact information, but microformats for audio, microformats for media, um, even microformats for resumes. So I have a question for you. Uh, uh, in regards to the microformats, is like, do all the microformats or is like when you say search engine, basically you mean like Google, right? Uh, primarily Google, but um, you know uh, Yahoo has had some historical support for microformats with its Search Monkey mm -hmm. um, effort. Uh, Bing, I don't really uh, know how it uses microformats. It does use um, a, a new structured data format called Schema.org. Right. Um, and this is based off of HTML5 microdata. And this happens to be um, sort of um, like a, another way of doing uh, semantic information in your pages. So maybe microformats isn't what you're interested in. Microdata uh, could be another option. And schema just sort of packages it. The power that I think schema.org offers is that I think it came out about seven months ago, and all three of the major search engines support it in terms of they actually parse the uh, schema microdata information that you add to your pages and intend to use that to affect uh, search engine results. Not necessarily ranking, but how those results display to the user who's searching. Um, and it was something that my impression when I first heard of it, I was, I was quite excited about schema.org. In fact, even though it doesn't use microformats, which, um, you know, is sort of a grassroots effort for reusing um, HTML attributes and existing things to add semantics. Mm -hmm. um, schema, because it uses HTML5 microdata, you know, it's it's part of a, in a sense, part of the specification, if it, as long as that becomes part of the final spec. Um, I thought that was a sign in a good direction for support of semantic information in our pages and structured data to help machine readability. Um, but a lot of people in the microformats community would disagree strongly with that sentiment in the sense that I think, personally, I think there's some ego issues in there, but I also do think that there have 
been historically this sort of like, well, open web is better. And because Google and Yahoo and Bing all went behind closed doors, came up with the vocabularies for their schema, Mm -hmm. and then just released it without any sort of community input that really ruffled the feathers of, you know, the microformats and even our DFA communities who have long been part of the open web sort of community-driven effort. I mean, and it's, it's a little bit of an ego thing, but it's also kind of like, I don't know. This seems kind of like it came out of nowhere, kind of an issue, and then you know, it's it's not like. Yeah, I don't think it came out of nowhere. Google has been ramping up its support and desire to have structured data in HTML for a long time. Right. Um, with their rich snippets initiative, and even before that, um, they even launched like a, a Google-driven recipe search that drives entirely off of structured data, like microformats and RDFA. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this was a sign that. I, I took it as a sign that we could finally standardize, that we could finally have one path as, and by we, I'm referring to the practitioner who has to develop sites for clients. Um, I'm not talking as a, someone who's invested years and years and years into something like this and feels that uh, there's a lot more at stake than just putting out good information to for a good end result. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think this is the death of microformats or open web or anything like that. I think this sets us up for um, potentially finally coming to some sort of standardization within this movement of, of adding this sort of um, uh, semantic value, extra goodness to our, our websites. So who, I, I didn't who, think it came out of nowhere. Who is behind schema.org? Is that Google, Microsoft, and Yahoo? They created that or? Yeah. Yes. And, and Which, so I'm, I'm sure everyone's like, oh, that's scary. They, they <laughs> have then control over everything. But, you know, it comes down to me. It comes down to me, the practitioner, and what I'm going to follow ultimately. Because Google's still supporting microformats. Google's in their rich snippets. They're still supporting all the original um, formats that they did before schema was announced. So are there schemas for these uh, all the kind of same uh, items that there are for microformats for yes and even more so and this is sort of where um this is where microformats and schema sort of diverge in the sense that microformats are uh not extensible they are it's a fixed set of microformats they have a fixed process to go through um to get from you know a proposal to a draft to a formal um microformat Um, And they're not trying to kind of cover every single base of content out there. They're trying to kind of cover 80% of the most common content out there, contact information, events, reviews, et cetera. Schema, it's hugely extensible, and they have many, 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 many more uh, vocabularies to describe things. I don't necessarily think this is good. Um, for example, for events, they have like 15 different vocabularies you could use to describe an event. Whereas microformats, there's one way of describing an event. Right. And they break it down. I'm looking at the schema.org site now. They have particular types of events, like mm-hmm. how to mark up a business event, a children's event, a comedy event. Exactly. Uh, I'm not sure that, I, I, at least when I think about it, I don't really want to get into that level of um, detail. Uh, necessarily when, you know, I'm marking up sites. Maybe, but that's one of the things, this is so new and so few people are really using it because so few people were already doing microformats to begin with. Um, Mm -hmm. That's 
another reason why I'm, I was very excited about schema to begin with, because I thought it would put some attention on the benefits and importance and value of adding this uh, stuff to your uh, HTML, even if, you know, it didn't end up being, you know, the main way we went, if microformats came out on top or, you know, microdata in, in some other format does, I just thought it'd be nice to have that be something that would be important to everyone so that we could have more valuable mm -hmm. content on the web. Yeah, well, I feel like it's, um, probably the issue is like with, you look at the lessons of XHTML where you had like these strict uh, um, laws or rules for coding up content and otherwise being valid, you know, you know, Opera did the test and found out like, you know, less than 5% of the websites are, are valid. And, and then you have like a kind of like a spec like schema, which, you know, closed doors, uh, they came out, Hey, here's what we're do Here's what we suggest, uh, doing, you know, that kind of doesn't what really will catch on fire, you know, as much as say, Hey, uh, web developer or, you know, as your, as your practitioner, which is a really cool word, but, um, say like you have to code this content anyway uh like a resume or a, a recipe or something like that uh when you just use this kind of like easy to use uh uh design pattern called microformats and uh be done with it mm -hmm. you know and, and and that i think will catch fire easily especially if you have a tools like a i know microformats.org has a has a links or hosts some um free services that will for online online generators and stuff like that but mm -hmm. I think yeah, I, I'm, I'm sorry, Dave. Go ahead. I mean, at the same time, if you have all the major search engines behind this exactly. schema.org and one of the huge benefits of doing this kind of markup is so that uh, your site can be indexed in, in unique ways uh, for the kind of content that you're offering, you know, it seems like they've got a lot going for them. I would kind of support yeah that, you know, because then I'm building sites that I know Google, I know Bing, I know Yahoo, they're going to index it, they're going to pull out my events in a proper way and present it in kind of a unique uh, 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 structure that otherwise I, I might not get or I could use micro formats, but maybe they'll stop supporting it at some point. But Yeah, I mean, I don't, and I really sincerely don't anticipate Google stopping support of micro formats. I mean, micro formats are, are, are um, there's billions of examples published on the web, and I'm not exaggerating. It's really that high of a number. Um, but I, I agree with your point, Dave, and especially now that I'm solo, uh, that's something I could sell to a client. I mean, right. maybe not quite yet because I can personally say that I haven't implemented schema because speaking to what Christopher was saying about a simple markup pattern, uh, microdata is not simple compared to microformats. Right. Uh, therefore, schema is not simple compared to microformats. Microformats utilize um, a, the class attribute, which a lot of front-end develop, front developers are already familiar with. Um, they can, in, and then in turn, utilize those uh, class values for their styling if they wanted to. It's just an added bonus. Um, but it's simple and straightforward, whereas schema.org and microdata, they utilize many new attributes that are therefore new to um, developers. It's a little bit more convoluted in terms of what you have to include. There's item type and item prop attributes that have to be included. And, mm -hmm. and as you can see from the vocabularies on schema.org, it, it can get very narrow, which um, I think the more narrow you get, the harder people seem to be able to wrap their heads around it. I mean, just lately people complaining about the 
I mean, if I see one more argument about article versus section, I want to bang my head against the wall. It's ridiculous, <laughs> you know, um, because they're like, oh, but I don't know how to decide. And it's like, just use your brain. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I don't, uh, you know, we, we definitely lean towards simplicity. And I don't think necessarily that schema has over microformats. Mm-hmm. But that search engine thing, that's huge. It, or it yeah. could be huge. We still don't know. That's the thing. What I do know, if and I've been somewhat of a, you know, I'm not negative about microformats at all. I, in fact, I love them. I love their simplicity. I still write them. I haven't written any microdata. But, you know, the community itself has had its own issues in the past and continues to have, um, you know, little problems. Like, Christopher, you mentioned they have uh, some online tools that, that will generate your markup or your microformats for you. Uh-huh. Um, those are still available, but they generate some of the worst HTML I've ever seen. <laughs> that, to me, is not necessary necessarily how you spread um, an initiative. That's not how you spread a word. That's why I wrote the book, because I wanted people to see uh, not 20 nested divs and a bunch of spans, because I don't want to write that. Um, you know, so I think the introduction of schema.org and, you know, even microdata, if that becomes a formal part of the specification, which I expect it to, um, that that's going to spur microformats to become better. In fact, I know Tontech and his crew are already working on microformats version two, trying to find ways to improve uh, the existing patterns and process. Cool. Awesome. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I'm looking at schema.org. I mean, I, I agree that there's, you know, some, you know, there's something always to fear about three organizations sort of coming together and figuring out uh, what are, you know, what, you know, the standards are going to be for some technology. Mm-hmm. But they certainly are, you know, seem devoted to this. They've got a lot of stuff happening. They've just, it looks like they've got a job postings uh, schema that so now you can, you can mark up job postings in a certain way. And they've got I don't know, it says the United States Office of Science and Technology Policy is supporting this um, for markup on their website. So it seems like, um, you know, I mean, I guess the question would be if you were to, uh, now that people know about these things, people listening to our podcast, you know, wh- what would you recommend them to learn if they were had to choose? Should they learn microformats or should they uh, put their chips behind schema.org? Right. Well, and in, this is sort of a cop-out response, um, <laughs> but it's 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 true. I would also I would always start with microformats uh, for a couple reasons. The first is that comparatively speaking, they're easier to implement. Um, it, you know, the wiki is a very deep resource of information, um, but I would recommend that you check out my book or go to my blog. I have I have about nine tutorials on different microformats that show them in a real world markup situation. Mm -hmm. And it really is about adding um, a class attribute to your markup um, or several class attributes to your markup. And the beauty of starting with that sort of simplicity a simple, simplistic implementation is that you can start getting your mindset wrapped around why you're doing this, that you're not adding a class value so you have um, a, a hook for your CSS. You're adding a class value to give information to machines. And once you start sort of thinking in this fashion, you start embracing semantics, then it sort of just makes sense in general and taking the step to go to microdata, HTML5 microdata or schema, um, you're just, you're doing the same things except instead of using the comfortable class value, you're using the item type and the item prop uh, attributes. 
Um, so you could use it as like a stepping stone. Additionally, right. microformats, aside from what I mentioned about the three uh, search engines supporting it uh, schema, microformats have some fairly decent support um, outside of search engines. There are lots of browser plugins that parse, parse microformats. Um, there are tools that let you allow someone to uh, download uh, events to their calendar or subscribe to events. Same with contact information. Um, Google Rich Snippets, as I mentioned, that is going to be supporting microformats um, in addition to schema and microdata and RDFA. Um, so microformats has, uh, I think at this point, has far more use right now. Um, and I think it's a great way to start and get used to it. And then the beauty of it is, is if you want to get into uh, schema, you can just add that alongside your microformats. You don't have to strip out your microformats and get rid of them. There aren't going to be any conflicts. It's completely valid mm -hmm. markup. So when, you, when I, I read about microformats and microdata, RDFA also comes up a lot in the conversation. Can you talk a little bit about what RDFA is and how that fits into these other technologies? Sure. I can really only offer the highest level uh, description because RDFA is not something I've ever written and I only understand it in relation to microformats. Um, it is, uh, utilizes um, its own vocabulary and XML-based vocabulary to describe content. Um, just like microformats describes content and microdata describes content, RDFA describes content. Um, RDFA is uh, far more complex to write, even more so than microdata, because you do have to have an understanding of XML and then all of the syntax for that vocabulary. But even more importantly, RDFA, sort, most of the time, it's kind of like an environment where they have such a specialized type of content, like a, a national lab or an educational institution. And they have to create a vocabulary to describe their specific type of content, that it's, it's very, very narrow. Um, and so someone within the organization or has to create a taxonomy of what they have to describe. And they basically create that file and map it in their markup. Gotcha. Um, now, and that's like the like dumb blonde version of how to describe it. So if you need to know more, definitely look it up. No, no, that sounded that was great because I I don't know anything about RDFA, so it's it's good to sort of put those things into context that they're all different ways of marking up data. Some are mm -hmm. easier. Uh, RDFA sounds like the most complex, and also more nichey, like it can mm -hmm. be for individual organizations. Um, you mentioned Google Rich Snippets. That's something new to me too. What 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 exactly are those? Oh, um, yeah, I, <laughs> I remember them uh, distinctly because they came out in the middle of writing my book and I had to rewrite two chapters, which is so fun. <laughs> um, but it's just uh, basically Google uh, parses HTML and looks for uh, microformats and RDFA, and I do believe now the schema, for uh, contact information, events, reviews, and I think I'm missing one more microformat that they're, they're following. But anyways, what it does is when they find um, a page, a website that has a microformat, for example, for an, an event, uh, what it'll do is when a user uses Google to search for, let's say, that event and it comes up in the snippets in the search results, um, that, is, that particular snippet is going to stand out from all of the other snippets because it's going to display some of the information you've added via your class attribute. For example, um, 
I think it's, uh, oh, uh, Yelp. They have reviews and everything. If you do a search for Yelp, you can, Yelp is using microformats for reviews and Google Rich Snippets shows um, how many stars it collectively has. It may even show a price. Um, if they're, who's the other, I'm drawing a blank on the other major, what's the major event site? Playfast? Uh, no, I'm any one of the major event sites will is also using the H H calendar microformat for events, and when you do a search for that, it shows up uh, event information like date and time, um, you know the location or venue. Right. So it just makes the snippet stand out with a little bit more contextual information for the searcher, so that that person can say, "Yep, that's definitely the link that I want to click through to." So they, so they you, enrich their snippet. <laughs> so is that what's behind, like when you do a, a Google search, sometimes you'll see these stars and the number of votes and other things that appear underneath the title of the page? Yes. You know what's behind um, that? Now, I can't say that Google doesn't use other things to generate those kind of snippets, but I do know for pages that use microformats that, yes, that sort of triggers that special display of the snippet. They might use other things to do that too. Um, I mean, there might be other kind of uh, agreements that they make to do that. But if you do add, you know, like an H review, which is the microformat for reviews to your site, mm -hmm. uh, that it'll show up with that sort of information on the snippet. Cool. cool. So uh, I think one thing, you know, that I, I, when I describe, you know, microformats to people, they sound really, oh, that's really cool. That's awesome. Um, but everyone wants to see an example of how that benefits them. Like, mm -hmm. what does Google actually, where can we see the, the end result of adding an H card, for example, or an H event to a page? Can we see that on Google somewhere? Just Is it just through a search? or? <laughs> Excuse me. Well, I mean... You can see the, the rich snippets is something you can visualize. Um, that's something that uh, I use to help people visualize it. But if you're referring to like the benefit of, of having an H card or a contact microformat on your page, that would be more the benefit of that would be better demonstrated, maybe not necessarily through Google, but um, the page itself where it exists, um, that author could provide the ability for the person to download that directly to their address book, which could be useful, particularly in a mobile environment. Mm -hmm. um, same with like events um, to download them to their calendar um, and their tools. And this is, this is the thing that sort of sucks about microformats is that um, they're really easy to publish. And that's why there's literally billions of them out there on the web, but there haven't been as much, there hasn't been as much adoption in terms of consumption, like a tool that shows you the benefit of it, what you just asked for. Right, right. And a thing that allows you to download um, contact information or event information, the content author actually has to add that to their page mm -hmm. or the user has to have that enabled on their browser or a plugin installed on their browser. Right. Um, and I know for sure my mom is not doing that. And, <laughs> you know, my, my clients aren't doing that. You know, it's, it's my geek friends that get that. Right. And that kind that's been, you know, that's the problem I think we have with microformats and microdata and RDFA is that people still don't see the value, but I think that's going to change. I really do believe that the search engines and machines and other types of processors that want to do something more with our information, that in time, this is going to catch up. Right. I mean, that goes to the fact that like you have a, 
you can get like if you're Firefox, you get like a a plugin that will like kind of scrape or like look at the coding of your web page, and, and then you can like export uh, H cards or microformat mm-hmm. H cards to your to your contact address book. Uh, there's also a service online that will you just send uh, like your web page to the service. It will um, it will yeah it will like you know give you all the events and actually make a like a iCal or um, calendar for you to insert into your calendar uh, automatically. So, uh, but we, it would be awesome if uh, Google make a browser if they have one uh, <laughs> that, that 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 would scan the page and allow you to uh, you know maybe highlight visually which area has the information and be able to export it with like a right click or something like that. That'd be I, I agree. I mean, Internet Explorer 8 was trying to do something like that with their web slices. Oh, yeah. Like they, right. yeah. yeah, they were trying to do, basically you could use web slices alongside microformats and the web slices would, would highlight sections of the page that had extra semantic goodness in the markup. Right. Um, but, you know, it was Internet Explorer 8, so... <laughs> <laughs> I don't, you know, it's, it's, it would be really nice to see browsers start doing more. Um, but I think it's simply a matter of time. It's, right. it's just a matter of time that this stuff becomes more important, especially with schema um, being announced just a few months ago. I was reading that Best Buy, which is a major retailer here in the United States, um, they've added it to their system and they're going to be watching and evaluating what it's going to offer mm-hmm. um, their users. And so it's going to be test cases showing the value of these things. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm uh, cruising through the rich snippets area of Google right now, and mm-hmm. uh, you go to various pages to see, you know, examples of the rich snippets, and they've got a big yellow box that basically says you should go to schema.org. It's a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so I think it's this. So like you can get all this like uh, you know Google Juice maybe, or like in terms of just maybe not even Google Juice, but just. Uh, a Google presentation in the search results, but at the and that could be a benefit. Uh, definitely, that's something that you would like. You know, if you're a website and you you want that sort of uh, you, you know, not. I guess every website would want the traffic, but in terms of the people who actually are in the trenches building it, I think microformats is just it's easier. Uh, it's a plus one because it's it's uh, not plus one, but it's 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 a it's a win because you go, you're going to have to code it anyway. Why not uh, mark it up to a standard that's out there that's agreed upon? So. That's exactly. And I've I I know this is such a small thing and especially as more people use attribute selectors, it's less and less important. But I always liked using semantic class values in my CSS. And so having microformats already give me what those class values were, then I just dial on those too. And I didn't have to think twice about it. I just hmm. you know, I did my markup first like I always do, and then I did my CSS based off of that markup. Right. I think microformats are awesome. I don't know. Yeah, I think they're awesome too. But what I think is ultimately awesome is is this concept of structured data and semantic data in our HTML and right. whatever ends up being the the tool that everyone, hopefully, everyone will embrace and we can sort of standardize on. Right. You know, so that it's so that I mean, especially like I think I said this already. Especially now that I'm freelancing, like I want to make money, and so <laughs> I want to be able to go to a client and say, yeah, I can, I can make a difference. But in your markup alone, just me, myself, and I, no special Google ad programs, no SEO black hat stuff. Right. Um, I can make a difference in your search results. Exactly. That's powerful to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I want that. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think it's amazing that you, you can still do that just with like, 
you know, decent content and mm-hmm. uh, someone who knows what HTML means and the semantics behind it, you could, you could do, I could, and you compare that to a, a competitor who doesn't know that or uses table based layouts or something like that. And, you know, mm-hmm. like you're just, you're miles ahead uh, if you hire yeah. a, a web designer who knows what's, you know, knows what they're doing. So, right. Yeah, I think semantics is uh, an, an appreciation for semantics and a semantic mindset is what's going to separate. Um, a good C, uh, front-end developer from a great front-end developer. Right, definitely. Yeah, exactly. Well, you mentioned that uh, you know, you're know you you're freelancing and stuff like that, and uh, I guess now would be a good time just to just talk more about like how do you, uh, have you always been freelancing, or have you? Oh, no. Um, let's see. It was about, it was sometime in April of 2010. It was a Friday, and I'd finally had enough, and I cracked, and I just sent my boss an email. I was like, I quit. <laughs> I had been working um, for a, a really big uh, U.S. Fortune 500 corporation for about five years um, in a web team that was in the marketing team that was in the software division, which that was in, it was like million nested organizational um, kind of thing. Um, and then prior to that, I worked in a mid-sized software company. Um, but yeah, I've always kind of worked for someone else. Until about eighteen months ago. Yeah. And so, what was the uh, transition like? What was, what was the like? You know. You know. Yeah. I it 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 was it was pretty good actually. I mean, it was. I knew that I needed to leave that job a lot. I knew I needed to leave a long time ago, and I just didn't. And I didn't because you get really tied to that salary and the stability, um, and. You know, I live in a, a town that does not have a good web market. There's there's no jobs here. All of the work I've gotten in the past year has been pretty much outside of my own town. Mm-hmm. And that's a scary feeling because I come from D.C. and now I'm living in Albuquerque. And it's, it's a big difference. I don't have a lot of faith that I can get a job here if I needed. So I stayed with that company longer than I needed to until, you know, the meetings after meetings where nothing gets done, um, when they're hiring outside agencies to write HTML that I then have to rewrite for three months. Um, when I'm getting, you know, 20 CSS files, none of which are commented from some agency that they just should have let me do in the first place. Um, I just had enough. And so I just, I, it really was a, it was a last minute decision. I did not plan. I didn't save. I didn't set, I didn't have any freelance clients lined up. Um, it was just one of those decisions where I had enough and I owed it to myself to find a, an environment where I, I could have some sort of, you know, sense of progress in my career. Um, you know, that I could make a difference in things. And so, you know, once I quit, I, I really took like, almost six weeks, six to eight weeks kind of off. Mm. Um, I didn't do anything. I mostly kind of freaked out my head (laughs) 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 about what I was going to do and how I was going to get clients because I'm not a salesperson and I'm not a schmoozy, make nice, nice person. Um, But I had the benefit of um, I sold a house before I moved to Albuquerque. So I had some money that allowed me to take that time. I think if I didn't have that um, little savings, uh, that it would have been a much more stressful period into freelancing. And, and so, what were the um, 
now that you've been doing this for a while, so what, what are the, um, I guess, tricks or techniques have you been been doing like that, that you've learned to keep on doing it? Because it's it's a different world. Because um, I, I went from doing the agency work to to doing the freelancing like overnight, as almost overnight. As it sounds like in the same kind of kind of scenario. So, is there anything kind of tricks that you've learned or to keep things going? Or? Um. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing the over. The, the big umbrella that punctuates my freelance um, experience um, is how hugely important your network is. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, like I said, I took six to eight weeks off pretty much. But then once I told people that I was available for work mm-hmm. and, and I literally did that. I told people on Twitter, I told people on Facebook, mm-hmm. I wrote a blog post. And then I sent an email to every person I know, including like, extended cousins and grandparents, you know, people everywhere just saying that I was going to be on my own and available to do web work. Um, and I immediately, you know, I got a job from a colleague I had met at a conference. And then a month after that, I got, you know, someone needed me to help them finish a project and, and then someone referred me to a client and it just sort of has been a constant uh, process of me not having to seek work, but me just making sure that I'm tied into my network. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the most important things for people, especially who want to make that break, need to understand it's not solely about your skills as a designer or a coder. Um, in fact, really, when you're going freelance, that's, um, um, <laughs> you know, you know, you need to have that, but that's minimal compared to your ability to sell yourself, to make connections with other people, to market your services. Um, when I teach, to, uh, I teach web design development at Portland State uh, University here in Portland, and, uh, you know, I have students ask me, oh, what do they need to learn? What do they need to know? And, uh, you know, I tell them you need to learn how to market yourself because you could be the best designer in the world, best coder. But if you can't get your stuff out there, make the connections and get the jobs, you're not going to get anywhere. Right. Yeah. Being um, having the great opportunities such that Christopher has offered with me, you know, speaking at In Control or doing Environments for Humans. Um, even especially my local community, um, I lead a user group here. Um, just trying to make sure that people know what I do. Uh, they know that I'm available to do work. And then, you know, it it does matter that you're good at what you do because you won't get another referral if you screw something up. So, um, you know, representing yourself fairly in terms of what your skills are has also been an important lesson as I work within my community and contacts. Mm-hmm. Have there been uh, any particular avenues of, of marketing that you are you know, getting your you know, brand out there that you feel have been more successful than others? For example, Twitter or just yeah. you know, pounding the, the streets or you know, going yeah. to user groups? Yeah, I've never pounded a street. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> I got in chalk and I wrote my uh, Twitter handle on the sidewalk and I pounded it. It was great. It was. <laughs> um, Twitter's been great for me uh, for a really long time. Um, in fact, it, I point to Twitter as how I ended up being able to read a book. Um, so Twitter has been invaluable. That said, uh, me working as a freelancer this year, I've had less time to do absolutely everything including being on Twitter. So that's been very difficult to sort of maintain a presence with my online network uh, while I'm trying to work. Because when I worked for a corporation, I, 
I don't think I worked because I had so much free time. I wrote a book <laughs> when I had that job <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Um, now I just, I don't have time for that, but right. primarily social media and, you know, being involved in a user group and attending conferences or workshops, um, bar camps. We had a bar camp here in Albuquerque last week. Um, those things, I mean, that's, that's how you meet and not just attending them, talking to people while you're there, like, you know, getting over any insecurities you have. Um, one of my tricks whenever I meet new people, because I tend to be very nervous in public environments, um, I get people not to talk about work. I get them to talk about themselves and their lives and their loved ones and their, you know, their dogs or whatever. And all of a sudden you created a connection with someone you can talk about shop later. But it's a lot easier to approach someone if you don't feel like you have to stand up and prove something to them, that you're smarter than them or, you know, that you know something. Just talk to them like they're, you're human. That's a weird concept. I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, it's something I notice a lot, especially because I run the uh, user group here in Albuquerque, Webuquerque. Yeah. And, you know, we get our fair share of, you know, socially awkward people. And all you have to do is... <laughs> you know, welcome them and make them feel comfortable and, you know, make them realize that they're part of the community. And it's, it's a big deal to be human around people, especially in our field. It's so easy to talk all about what you do for a living as opposed to who you are right. and who you are makes a difference. I, I mean, I'm very good at what I do, but I think that the reason I've gotten referrals is because people know that they can count on me. Right. They know who I am. Right. And uh, you're also good people, too. So I try. <laughs> <laughs> but um, a couple other things I learned right away with freelancing that I, I, I'm so glad I took care of right at the beginning because I have colleagues who also went freelance at the same time as I did and didn't take care of this stuff, like getting an accountant, mm -hmm. um, getting your tax, uh, whatever your state requires for taxes and right. um, licensing and stuff. Right. Um, you know, I, I felt myself getting paralyzed by those notions because I had people telling me, oh, you can just do it yourself. You can set all that stuff up yourself. But right. I'm not inclined to do those things. They stress me out and make me tense. So right. hire people who do that for a living. Yeah. It's the best stress. Really. You don't have to worry about it. They send you an email when something's due and tell you what has to be done. Right. Yeah. It's 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 been the hiring accountant has been like, uh, stressful and also relieving at the same time because you know you know you have to turn things in, but right. you're just you're just happy that you're not punching a calculator and you're actually like, uh, no, you're not punching a calculator for work uh, for taxes. You're actually you know maybe punching it to figure out what box width model or something like that. So <laughs> of an element. So it's it's you know it's it, it's I think as a you know just realizing your time is valuable and realizing if I hire an accountant uh, for this amount of time. It would actually be faster than me actually trying to figure all this stuff out and then losing time uh, working and freelancing and stuff like that. So it's exactly so well, and that's that's exactly why I in addition to hiring an accountant, I also started paying for certain certain monthly services like Shoeboxed. Oh, okay, awesome, awesome. It is absolutely. I mean, now that I'm freelancing, I save every receipt, whether it's for five cents for some stamps, some, although stamps are more expensive nowadays, <laughs> but anyways, you know, I, I save all these receipts and 
at the end of a month, I have a stack that I have no interest in scanning in, much less entering them into my spreadsheet. And I just mail them into Shoebox. They do it all for me. And it's worth every penny I spend each month because it's <laughs> under it's under 30 bucks and I'm not spending the time myself. Right. Wait, 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 wait. This is all new to me. What is this Shoebox? Oh, it's a Shoeboxed, like uh, pasttense.com. Yeah. Uh, and I only learned, it, learned about it because Emily blogged about it and because uh, uh and i just like what 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 and uh so basically you can uh uh they have also have iphone apps too so basically what you can do is uh there's different plans but you can um so, uh assemble your receipts put them in an envelope either they, they can mail you prepackaged ones or you can like uh print out a, a label for an envelope mail them to uh, and they'll mail them, mail them to them they'll scan uh organize it um and then put into their database that you can then uh, verify and check along with a photo of the receipt. I'm not sure. I've never really mailed them in, so I'm not really sure. If maybe Emily, you can talk to this, but but if you actually do an iPhone photo, they'll actually use the iPhone photo in the database, and then you can actually export that to like QuickBooks or exactly. Evernote, so Evernote. So so when it, when when it comes time for taxes, you have like all your receipts that you have out there, and so that. Since I do a lot of traveling, I use it primarily for like on the road stuff like right, uh yeah. and so, so i'm just like i don't have to worry about this piece of paper and yeah, i yeah. just like i have a photo it's up there i got i got the notification that it was sent i can then throw away that piece of paper and not worry about it and uh i have a copy of it in the cloud so wait and they actually extract the data like that you'll it, they pull out the numbers for you and you can get them in a yeah. format yep it's like they great. must use some sort of OCR or something or other. Well, I think they use OCR, but then they also use like um, probably like the uh, what's the service that Amazon has? Uh, oh, uh, Mechanical Turk. Yeah, yeah. So they probably <laughs> hire people to uh, uh, double check that. Oh. Sure. Wow. So that's how that's I would crazy. think. That's how I would do it, but I'm not sure how they would do it themselves. So, but um, but yeah. So that's how. And it's so awesome. Just as just to click it. Click the photo, have it uploaded, and and just save so much time. So, and that's yeah, amazing. Wow. It is. It is because what I had tried to do before I stumbled into Shoebox was scan each of those freaking receipts yeah. one by one, and then hand type all the details from each one. I mean, it was hours upon hours upon hours just to save myself probably like five bucks from the IRS. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's. Yeah, it's worth, is there any other service that you would recommend? Uh, um, well, I, I live and breathe on Basecamp. My entire business, my entire life, everything with my user group, I run on Basecamp. Um, that's been fantastic for me from a project management standpoint for my own business, mm -hmm. uh, especially because I'm constantly looking at my, you know, my blog or my site and I'm thinking, oh, I need to do that, I need to do that. And so I'll just add a to-do to the system so at least it's somewhere. Um, but it's been really great for uh, some of the clients I've had this year to really give them that sort of big picture perspective of the project because, I, you know, when I start a project, I usually set up all of the milestones according to what the, the contract reads and get some to-dos in place for myself and for the client and sort of just sort of gives them that sense of, you know, they can always check in, see what I've been working on, where I've been. Right. Um, and then I, I use FreshBooks for my um, time tracking and invoicing, and I've mm -hmm. been pretty pleased with it. It has integration with Basecamp, um, so I don't use that. That I tried using it, but I, I found that I liked the time tracking in FreshBooks itself rather than the Basecamp time tracking integrated into oh. FreshBooks. So. 
but yeah, those are my main my main services: Fresh Books, Basecamp, and Shoebox. Nice, those are good. Yeah, I'm very very pleased. Um, I've, I've and it, one thing I will say: my uh, boyfriend he tried to go freelancing about the same time I did. Also tried to use a lot of the same tools that I did. It, not everything works for everyone. You really have to find the right thing that works for you. Um, and if something's not working right away, especially if you're freelancing, find something that does right away. Because you can't spend time being like, I got a week to figure out how to use this system. It's not like working on someone else's dime. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, yeah, so I absolutely agree with the accountant thing. I mean, I would never be able to do my own you know, books. And it's worth all the money just to not have to even worry about that. Right. Definitely. Okay, cool. Well, um, you know, we talked about freelancing as an important step in marketing and stuff like that. So where can people find you? Like you're, you have your own podcast and conferences. Oh, yeah. So um, if you want to hire me for work, you can go to emilylewisdesign.com, all one word. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm mostly, you can find me on Twitter at Emily, at Emily Lewis. And then the EE podcast, um, ee-podcast.com. We do a bi-weekly podcast about the Expression Engine publishing system. Um, it's, so, uh, so bi-weekly is twice a week, or is that? I'm it, sorry, bi-monthly. Is every two weeks. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Every every other week. Okay. Okay. So, 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 so bi-monthly. Okay. Cool. I, I I always screw that up because I was I'm actually asking because I've like I actually have to sound it out out loud in order to figure out what it's like. <laughs> So it's like twice a week. Wow, that's awesome. So, that's yeah, amazing. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's every other week. Um, that And that's been really, really fantastic. Leah Alcantara um, invited me to be the new co-host when uh, Ryan Ireland uh, stepped down. He was the person who sort of started the podcast two years ago, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so I came on board and it's been really, really fun. Leah and I have almost identical working styles. So we just, we work really well together. Oh, cool. Awesome. And, um, cool. Well, that's great. Well, uh, and, uh, also you, the, I also want to plug the HTML5 cookbook. Yeah. That, uh, uh, she, uh Emily wrote some really awesome chapters, uh, for the book and really happy to, to have her contributions because after like, you know, we spent so much time, uh, talking today, which is awesome about microformats, uh, and clarifying what those are and in relation to everything else. It was just, uh, just having her book, uh, just reading her book. I just want to make sure that she was involved in the HTML5 cookbook in some way. And so I was really happy that she was able to, to do it. So, uh, yeah, and thank you, Christopher, because I have to tell you, after I wrote my book, I swore I would never write. <laughs> um, and so being able to contribute to something and be a part of a project where I knew all the other authors were really invested in quality of information, it was really nice. And then I didn't have to worry about anything. I just had to be a writer. Oh, thank you. See, all, all the worries that you didn't have to worry about, that was my job. <laughs> <laughs> <I know. laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, man. Ah, oh, jeez, I totally understand. <laughs> Just, uh, but yeah, I swore I would never write another book after book number ten, and uh, that, that didn't quite work out. So, yeah. Uh, but uh, but yeah, just because like it's it's so much pressure and work and stuff like that. But it's a lot of work. Yeah. But like when you when you when you see it come together, it's it's always it's always rewarding. So because uh, uh, there's a thing where um, doctors will tell you that people don't remember pain, right? Uh, but they'll remember the positives that come out of it. And so, like three months from now, I'll look at the book and it's like, "Wow, this is great! Let's just go write another book." 
And yeah, see, that's why I blogged. <laughs> that's why I blogged about my pain, so I, so I could remind myself never ever to do it again. And see, I just share my pain in silence, so I should probably <laughs> blog well, that. I'll tell you, I've written three books, two yeah. editions of two of them, and eight editions of another, yeah. and I still feel the pain. I remember the pain. <laughs> I can think about the pain. I wake up with the pain, and I dread when I have to write another one. But I keep coming back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all for the greater good. We have to have good people writing good information. Right. Definitely. Exactly. Yes. That's why I do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's not for the money. <laughs> That's right. All my money goes to charity. Yeah. Oh, man. So, um, cool. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. No, it was great talking to you guys. It was fun. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Emily. Awesome. Our thanks to Emily Lewis for joining us today on Non-Breaking Space. As always, check the show notes at nonbreakingspace.tv for all links and sites discussed during the episode. And special thanks to our sponsor, insert sponsor name here, for supporting Nonbreaking Space. Thanks for listening and have a great day.